Welcome to the Picture This Photography Podcast where we talk about all things photography and today we're going to be talking about the history of Kodak and their incredible founder, George Eastman. Now, this is way more interesting than it sounds, so I think you need to settle in, put on your headphones, find a little time to have to yourself to unwind, relax, and just think about Kodak. Yeah, Kodak has a really intense history. They literally invented the digital camera. They defined the way modern photography is today. And then they threw it all away and went completely bankrupt. We'll take you down that whole path. But first, a word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Whether you need a website, a store, or a portfolio for all of your beautiful pictures, you can make it happen with Squarespace. And you can do that today for free. No credit cards needed. Just go to squarespace.com Chelsea and use the coupon code Chelsea to get 10% off. Thanks Squarespace for making this podcast possible. Let me say this is an incredibly complex history. We have certainly made some mistakes. We will document those in the description of this video on YouTube, as well as provide you a list of all of our sources. So be sure to check there for any updates. Tell us about George Eastman. Okay, George Eastman is far and away the most interesting founder I've ever had the pleasure to research. He was born in Waterville, New York, um, and his parents were George Washington Eastman, and his mother was Maria Kilborn Eastman. Now, the Eastmans themselves are just interesting. They have a really long family history that's deeply rooted in the founding of the United States, and his relatives include Emily Dickinson, um, the Secretary of State Daniel Webster, uh, Francis Amasa Walker, who is the president of MIT, and Sidney and Arthur Colgate, who you might know from the soap and toothpaste company, they weren't only relatives, they were his friends. So the Eastmans have really established roots. His father, George Washington Eastman, grew up on a farm. So did Maria. But George Washington Eastman had really beautiful penmanship. And mm -hmm. he managed to make a whole career of that, Tony. He took this simple talent of penmanship. He started teaching lessons. He went from this small farming town of Waterville all the way to Rochester and started teaching. Then he opened his own business school. He went from being an average person to rich. They had George Eastman, the son, and two other kids, daughters. And so George Eastman was born into an affluent family. He had a pretty easy childhood until his father died right before he was about to turn eight. And this is about the time the Civil War is wrapping up too, just to put it in historical context. So Lincoln's in power, the slaves are being free. That's not why his dad died. No. But that's the time period we're in. No, and his parents were like progressive too. They both had uh, involvement in the Underground Railroad. His father had a stop along the Underground Railroad and his mother used to sew clothing for runaway slaves before they went off to Canada. Um, so George's father dies when he's eight and his mother still wants him to have a good life so she takes on boarders in the house to make money and she uses the money from the people boarding in her home to send George Eastman to one of the best private schools. She wants him to have a good education. But George, he wants to contribute to the family. So he drops out of school when he's 14 and he starts doing errands for an insurance firm. But he's making $3 a week. He's really proud that he can contribute to the family, but he wants to do more. And right away you start to see signs early on that George Eastman is a businessman because he starts meticulously documenting that $3 and how he spends it and how much he makes. What do you mean? He got a 15 cent haircut every other week. That's how meticulous he was. 
he went from that $3 job and he started studying accounting so that he could make $5 a week. So after work, he'd go home, he'd study, he moved up, he was making $5 a week, and then from there he got a job at Rochester Saving Bank. So, so this is Rochester, New York, like a two, three hours north of New yeah. York City. So by 20 years old in 1874, he was employed at Rochester Saving Bank and he was making $15 a week. Now, I bring up all this stuff about his personality so you have insight into who he was and how he was made the man he was. It does sound like he was cut out for accounting. He was He's keeping meticulous. track of his haircut. Like he loved that. keeping records. He loved writing to people. In fact, I read part of his 600-page biography and the biographer had to read 250,000 letters that Eastman wrote. Was he writing like a hundred letters a day? I have no How idea. How is that possible? He was prolific. So it's because of this record keeping that we know that in 1877, when George Eastman was 22 years old, he goes into a photography shop and he bought a five by eight inch camera box, a view tripod, a darkroom tent, and 24 other photography related items for $49.58 and two separate payments. That's how many details we have about George Eastman's life. Do you know what it's been like to pare it down to this podcast? <laughs> I was going insane. Anyway, he bought this big setup and he wanted to go on a trip with it, Tony. But he, he said in his correspondence in one of his letters, this stuff is heavy. It's so bulky, it's so cumbersome, I would need an entire donkey to carry all of this stuff. I don't know how the average person does this. Okay, it sounds like it might be an opportunity for young George Eastman. He just had to buy the photography equipment. He's like, there's a problem, and he wants to solve it right away. Okay. And he starts thinking that he can find a solution to these heavy plates that they're using at the time to develop photos. It's like film, before film, basically. Yeah, what they call dry plates. Yeah. Like all the chemicals are in there, you can develop it off-site on like a wet plate, but it's still like a big complex thing. You do it one heavy, frame at a time. Very yeah. heavy. Uh, so he goes to local photographers in Rochester, New York, and one of them, George B. Selden, was not only a photographer, but a patent clerk. And he was okay. getting photography lessons from these people, but also learning about patenting. And that's where he gets this idea that he wants to patent his plate that will be easier than all the rest. He starts trying to have people invest in his business right away. That's not even a business, by the way. It's a patent <laughs> and it's a machine. And George Eastman's like, I'm ready, I'm in. I want people to invest in me. Yeah, so, little carriage before the horse, right? Oh yeah, like his whole life is like that. He's so eager and he's just always thinking about the next step. So he goes to a friend and he asks that friend if he'll invest and his friend says, whoa bud, you have no proof of concept. Why don't you show me that this thing can actually work? Make your own factory. Like, sell it on your own first, and then I'll think about investing. So he buys a space above a music school in Rochester. He sets up his own little factory. He's coating plates on his own and selling them to the local photographers, and it works. He's actually making a business. Um, he's still working as a bookkeeper for the Rochester Savings Bank and making $1,400 a year, which is like twice what the average person is making. So all this is his side hustle? George Eastman, Tony, not a slacker. No. But the whole thing's working out, manufacturing plates, so he expands the space to the next two floors of the building. Uh, he hires like six employees, several women, which is really progressive, including his cousin, Eliza Tompkins, who is the head of the laboratory. She's doing chemistry and things and she was the highest paid employee, and he left her in charge of a lot of things. The company was profitable, but an employee later revealed that his machine was not actually effective. So this whole machine that he patented, the whole idea that he's selling, 
it doesn't really work. It's unreliable. There's bubbling on the plates when they're trying to code it. The machine keeps breaking down and they have to service it. And Classic tech startup problems. Yeah, and they end up just like hand coding a lot of the plates uh -huh. because it's more reliable. Yeah. So I bring this up to you, Tony, because this is a, an early example of George Eastman's ability to market. He knows he doesn't actually need the machine to work reliably. It's the idea of the machine and it's the idea that his company is like forward thinking and making things faster for photographers. Okay, so we've established that he's good at marketing and probably good at sales too. In comes Henry Strong. Henry Strong, Tony. He is a Navy paymaster and he owns a whip business. Like, whoosh, a whip. Okay, because people ride horses and stuff. Yeah, he's very rich, but he likes to gamble and he likes to take risks. Okay. He meets someone that knows Eastman in Las Vegas, and they tell him about Eastman. And so he hooks up with him, he likes Eastman, he likes his vision, he thinks he's a smart, driven kid, which of course he is, like he's very impressive, right? And he puts $1,000 into George Eastman to start a business, and then over the year he puts 5,000 in total, um, and they name it the Eastman Dry Plate Company. Strong is the president, and Eastman is the treasurer still keeping track of that money. Mm -hmm. Then in 1881, George Eastman's superior left the bank that he's working at, Rochester Savings, and something really interesting happens. This is where I think things really take a turn. George Eastman is next in line for that position, and they pass him over for the nephew of a director at the bank. And not only is George Eastman upset about it, but other people at the bank say, this is outrageous, this is blatantly nepotism, this is completely unfair, George Eastman deserves that position, and they passed him over for this nephew that has no right being there. So what does George Eastman do? Well, he sends fingers flying, Tony. <laughs> he pieces out, he says, forget you guys, I'm leaving the job, and everyone's shocked. What is he leaving the job for? This dry plate company that everyone thinks is crazy. They said, what is he doing? He's He's leaving this solid job where he's making a ton of money and he's important at the bank to this like pie in the sky dream of running this business. It's crazy. Yeah, this is the entrepreneur's dilemma, like giving up that stable income so you could put all your energy into a new business. It seems like it worked out for him. Did it? Because you know what happens next? What happens next? All of his customers come to him and they're like, your plates are fogging up. What's going on? Your plates aren't reliable anymore. They're faulty. There's problems. And so he goes into his factory and he's trying to figure it out. He's tinkering with everything. He's changing the chemicals. He's drying things differently. He's trying all different processes. He thinks there might be dust. He can't figure out why they're fogging. And 469 attempts later, he still hasn't solved the problem. So he packs up his crap. 469 attempts. This is a very precise number. I know that this number must be true because he kept journals and journals and journals of every little change wow. because he had scientific method even though he wasn't like truly a scientist, you know what I mean? He packs up his stuff and he goes back to England to Mawson and Swan and within a week they solve the problem. The problem is the gelatin that he was initially using to do the plates, like the source of the gelatin changed and nobody told him. So he went back to the original source and the problem was solved. Uh, he opened back up his company and he reduced the price of his plates by 25 cents to get his customers back. That's the early founding story of George Eastman. So in 1881, the Eastman Dry Plate Company is officially founded. In 1885, 
According to his own biographer, Eastman is ready to put together his first roll film camera. And this is going to be a huge revelation because no more dry plates. You'll be able to have film on a roll and take multiple pictures sequentially, which will make photography so much easier. According to his biographer and his stories, he had this camera all ready to go. He was patenting it and he found out that there was a patent conflict with a guy named David Houston out in North Dakota who had patented something about how the film latches onto the little rollers. Does he say, Houston, we have a problem? <laughs> so Eastman contacts Houston and buys the patent from him and then totally unrelated makes up the name Kodak because he likes the letter K. It sounds incisive. That's according to Eastman's biographer. David Houston's niece tells a very different story about all this. She says Peter Houston, David Houston's big brother, invented the roll film camera. David Houston patented it, and then Eastman came to him and bought his idea for this camera. Peter Houston had called that camera the Nodak, named after the state they lived in, North Dakota. In the telling of the story from David Houston's perspective, Houston's invented the camera entirely and gave it a name, and even suggested to Eastman that he change the N in Nodak to a K to come up with what would be the future company name. And in Eastman's telling of the story, he did everything and just bought one little patent because it had overlapped. He didn't even need that part of the invention. He'd already invented it. Drama. Who do you believe? I think it's really suspicious that the name Nodak is so similar to North Dakota. Like, I think that's a much more likely story. But I will say, Houston went on to create many other patents. Eastman continued to buy patents from him. Houston became very rich. So they both ended up having quite a bit of success. Let's jump forward to 1888 when the Kodak camera is actually released. It's priced at $25, which is about 700 bucks now. So moderately expensive, but that comes with a hundred pictures inside of it. So you take a hundred photos, they advertise it as being as simple as clicking, it's probably not that easy. He says, it. he coined the advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest. Yeah, and the tagline is, the only camera that anybody can use without instructions. Well, the way it would work is you would take your hundred pictures and then you would bring it to Kodak or mail it in and they would process everything and either give you the negatives or give you some prints. And I really think that this was the invention of the what we call the razor and blades business style. Yeah. Razor and blades is named for Gillette, the razor blade company, because they sell the handles super, super cheap, but the handles have a little proprietary blade clip on there. It's a, it's a smart business model because people are drawn to the super cheap handle, but then they end up spending way more money over their lifetime on the replacement blades. The same thing happened with the Kodak cameras. The original body was fairly inexpensive, but if you ever shot film, you know, 10 years down the road, you've bought hundreds of roll of film and you spent thousands of dollars on the film and the developing. Kodak was pretty proprietary. Nobody else made the film, nobody else processed it, so they really did own the entire process from start to finish. The next big innovation was in 1900 when Kodak launched the Kodak Brownie. I should mention that they changed the name from the company from the Eastman Dry Plate Company to Eastman Kodak. That's how fond Eastman was of the Kodak name that he apparently invented entirely from scratch. <laughs> so we have a Kodak Brownie here that's a slightly later model, but it's a very simple box with a hole in the front and 
a button that you push and then you wind it. Can I tell you something interesting about the Kodak Brownie? Yeah, please. It was the first camera for Ansel Adams, Mary Ellen Mark, and even Stanley Kubrick. That is so really cool. It made me wonder, had photography not been so accessible to people at that point, would we even have an Ansel Adams? And Eastman had indeed created a camera that was small and portable and inexpensive. At this point, the camera was down to $1 per camera, and the film was 15 cents. So it was getting less and less expensive, but it was making more and more money in volume. Then in 1910, 1914, we see them building up their presence in the Rochester, New York area. They're building big headquarters and factories and really becoming a huge part of the Rochester culture as well as one of the biggest employers. 1914 is about when World War I starts too. Yeah. And that's significant for photography and camera manufacturers because suddenly we had all these, especially young men, traveling for the first time, maybe last time in their lives, and Ooh. they want to take pictures, right? But the brownie is actually a pretty bulky box. So Eastman develops what they call the vest camera, which is a folding camera where the lens is sort of bellows and it extends out and you can fold it up and keep it in your vest. and. Eastman creates some pretty brilliant marketing around these soldiers with taglines like the parting gift, a vest pocket camera. And the image shows a woman kind of handing it to her soldier as he's being taken away. Ooh. It felt like photography was in a very dark place because there were so many images of war and death and such, and Eastman yeah. wanted to brighten it up. I really credit Eastman and Kodak with creating family photography. Even their taglines are their marketing. Prove it with a Kodak. And the advertisement shows a happy family fishing. Dad's got a big fish that he's holding up and mom is working the camera with the kids. And we still see that today, right? Yeah, Pixar didn't happen. It sounds like the exact same thing. And when people go on vacation, they have to get pictures. They have to share it. Absolutely. It is the exact same extension of what Kodak and Eastman created so long ago Eastman was so successful, they had 96% of the entire film market in the U.S., 96%, and they had 90% of all photographic goods. And they got there by buying every other potential competitor. So let's say Joe pops up and he's figured out a kind of a cool camera, Eastman buys it. Somebody patents something that is possibly useful in camera or film, Eastman buys it. He just bought dozens and dozens of companies until Kodak was like the only one left. And in 1920, the U.S. enacts the Sherman Act, which is an anti-monopoly act. Whoa-oh. <laughs> if you've ever played the game Monopoly, you know how it ends. One person has everything. And that's actually illegal in the U.S. because we depend on the free marketplace to keep prices down and to protect the consumer. But consumers really didn't have a choice at the time. You really had to get a Kodak camera. You had to get the film processed by Kodak. That was it. And the Sherman Act decided that that was indeed illegal. And this was really just their first attempt to try to break up Kodak. 1923, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, went after Kodak again, again, slapped their wrist, but didn't really change any of their market share. When you're that far ahead, it would be hard to knock you off the top. Yes, but it does happen. It just didn't really happen to Kodak for a long time. Mm -hmm. Some other camera companies did start to make ground after these anti-monopoly efforts. Some of the foreign film companies like Afka and Fuji wanted to start selling in the U.S. And 
At this point, Kodak relied on lobbyists, which still happens today, to actually change government laws to make it more difficult for both domestic and foreign competitors. And they managed to successfully get 30% tariffs on cameras. That means any foreign camera that's import, imported, the buyer basically has to pay a 30% tax to the U.S. government on it. And that okay. helps make sure that foreign cameras and film are too expensive to import. At the time, cameras and film were inherently linked because you bought a Kodak camera, you had to use the Kodak film, you had to use the Kodak processing. So you couldn't just be a camera manufacturer, you also had to do film. And Kodak owned so much of the raw materials and, say, the paper that was coming in that other camera companies just couldn't get started. And these tariffs helped to make sure that they couldn't work with foreign companies who were successful in their own countries and bring that to the U.S. So once again, Kodak found a way to just shut out all competitors. 1932, George Eastman dies. Do you know the story about this, Tony? Uh, how did he die? Okay, well, he invited some friends to his house. Sounds fun. That's a fun part. Then he told them he wanted them to see him rewriting re his will. And kind of so... He wrote out his will in front of them and he gave a bunch of money to like the dentist institute or something. He didn't want poor kids to not have dental care. He gave a bunch of money to universities. He gave a bunch of inheritance to his niece. And then he asked them to step out for a moment and he shot himself in the heart. And I think that he wanted his wishes to be honored. So he wanted witnesses there to make sure that they saw that this was actually what he wanted. That and of sound mind and body clause? Yeah, of else. sound mind and body. And I think he wanted to make sure that his money went towards philanthropic causes. Um, and also he had an illness. He had been suffering. He was in a lot of pain. He left a note and it said something like, my work here is done. Why wait? GE. And that was his suicide note. And so I think he felt like his work was complete. He didn't want to leave the world being really sick. He just wanted it to be over with. He didn't have any children. No. He also didn't have any religion. He didn't have a wife. Yeah. So, right, he never married. So Kodak does continue on. 1935, they develop Kodachrome film, which becomes extremely popular and really defines an entire generation. People get to know this film so deeply that they know exactly how to shoot it, how to process it, what colors it succeeds at, what colors it fails at, that kind of thing. 1935, they released the Kodak Junior 616, another folding camera, just slightly better, but it ends up being wildly popular, largely because of the compact size and the successful marketing about making pictures easy, being able to take pictures indoors. In 1937, Kodak helps to bring the slideshow to America. It was very successful in Europe. The Coda slide is a single unit where if you're shooting slides instead of negatives, you can now show your entire family a slideshow on your wall. Yeah. 1938, Kodak develops the first commercial camera with auto exposure. This is really a breakthrough because photography is a really technical skill. And a lot of people are getting their pictures back and they're like, oh my God, this is too bright, this is too dark. So now the camera can kind of sense the light in the room and give you pictures that will work. It costs 225 bucks, which is like $4,100 today. It's like oh. more than a Sony a7R IV. Wow. But it does have a lens built in, and it folds up pretty small. So okay. in some ways, it's a little superior. <laughs> it's like 20 years ahead of widespread adoption of auto exposure. It didn't work great. 
But a bit of trivia, they did not, they were not the first to patent auto exposure in cameras. The first seems to be Albert Einstein in like 1935. Albert Einstein patented auto exposure cameras using photodiodes and apparently his design wasn't very good. Nobody ever made it. Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, after the break, we're going to talk about how Kodak invents the digital camera, but then still goes bankrupt. And then they have a second chance. But what do they do with it, Tony? What do they we'll, do we'll with it? We'll tell you in just a minute. Don't give it all away right now. Okay. We need to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Speaking of history, it's time you start recording your own history. Where are you going to put your vacation photos? Where are you going to put your blog? Where are you going to put your portfolio? You can make sure that all of that is preserved and documented in a way that you want people to see by making your own Squarespace website or portfolio. You can do it for free. You don't even need to put in your credit card. Just go to squarespace.com Chelsea, make a website, put your pictures there, see how they look in a collection, put your prints for sale, Write a blog about your travels and your photo shoots and document your experiences as a photographer. And if you decide that after your 14-day free trial that you'd like to buy it and keep it, you can get 10% off with the coupon code CHELSEA. So go down to the description below and hit those links. Make it happen. Squarespace.com slash CHELSEA. Thank you. Okay. So just to reset, we're talking about the history of Kodak. We talked about George Eastman, the founder. We're talking about all of the new technologies that they're coming out with. They're a monopoly. They're huge. They're selling a ton of cameras and film. And now it's 1938. Yeah, George Eastman has already died. Kodak continues on. They launched the very first Kodak 35 millimeter camera, the Kodak 35. It is super successful. 1939, the World's Fair, which is a big deal at the time, they launch a couple new bullet cameras mm -hmm. in that sort of style of the era. But what I thought was interesting was they launched what looks a lot like an Instagram pop-up museum, a photographic theme area based on the newly released animated movie called Gulliver's Travels. But I thought it was interesting they kind of established that whole pop-up camera theme in order to get people to take and share pictures. Ahead like, of their time again. What will make people feel cool in pictures? And yeah, really, like 80 years ahead of their time. Okay, now we're going to move along to World War II. Yeah, we have to get really serious. Like, this is some dark stuff. I don't like it. Quite frankly, I was really happy about the Kodak history until you got into this part, so I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so I stumbled across information that was upsetting and disturbing about Kodak, and that required me to, at, at some point when I learned about it, I had to say something so that I was not complicit in what could be described as a cover-up, because a lot of this information is, is not readily available. Backing up, I went through a lot of the old Kodakery internal Kodak magazines that they published yeah. featuring pictures of their employees and stuff. And there was a lot of suspect stuff, though it's from the era, so maybe you can write some of it off. But in 1920, there was definitely a picture of a minstrel blackface band. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. This is all building up to what looks like a bigger trend within Kodak. Somebody who put together a Kodak retrospective in Toronto, Canada, the Canadian branch of Kodak, did much more study on this than I did, and she expressed some serious concern about a lack of ethnic diversity. She basically said, 
the overwhelming whiteness of the Kodak Canada employees became increasingly more apparent as she went through the archives. Non-white bodies were explicitly depicted for their otherness, and images depicting employees in the Chinese and Japanese Kodak offices were accompanied by um, dripping Orientalist axioms. So she had a lot of concern about how they were handling anybody who wasn't white. I find that so especially disappointing because, like I said, George Eastman's parents were anti-slavery. They were part of the Underground Railroad. Like, it seemed like they were so progressive. He was friends with Booker T. Washington. He invited him into a dinner party when that was really unheard of. He, don't, he was the biggest contributor to African-American colleges. Like, he yes. seemed like a super progressive, pretty fair guy. All that seems to be true as well as him giving massive amounts of money every year to eugenics. I did not know what eugenics was. This was not taught to me in Pflugerville history. E eugenics was founded sort of in science. If you look at the idea of nature versus nurture, what makes a person a good pianist? Uh, is it something that they learn or is it something that they're born with? Are they born with a certain amount of talent? You play piano. I am a terrible musician. I think you have some natural talent. I think you've also put a lot of effort into it. George Eastman, he founded his first factory over a music store. He was always really into music. He had one of the biggest organs installed in his house. And his personal alarm clock every day was he had a very talented musician play the organ to wake him up. That's strange. Yeah, he really lived life large. He was really into music. And he seems to have gotten into eugenics by trying to find out what made somebody a good musician. Was it possibly nature? Was it something genetic? If you had a very talented male musician and a talented female musician, could you put them together and have them make a child who was super extremely baby? talented? That's kind of what eugenics was into. This idea of almost applying farm breeding principles to people. It quickly became racist and anti-immigration. Eastman seems to have distributed hundreds of copies of this book to his employees. Now, nice. eugenics, maybe you can say it started out with some scientific basis and then became racist. Rockefeller was another one of the big rich people giving a whole bunch of money to eugenics. Rockefeller began to get a little creeped out, like 1932. He starts scaling back his money and cuts them off completely. He's like, you guys are getting real kooky with this Nordic stuff. I don't want any part of it. And at that point, Eastman steps up and he says, okay, Rockefeller's out. I'm giving you guys more money. And he ups his donation. So some of these principles of eugenics make their way into Hitler's own policies. Uh, I think it's 1927 when Rockefeller personally funds launching the eugenics association in Germany. And that like directly uh, points to Hitler and some of his later policies. So there's a pretty direct connection between the funding of eugenics and the rise of Hitler. Another direct connection is Kodak's relationship with Wilhelm Kepler. Kepler owned a gelatin photographic factory in Germany and made some money on that and very personally funded and structured the rise of Hitler into power. Uh, Kodak owned half, Kodak bought half of that photographic supply plant because they were just prone to buy everything that they possibly could. 
all around the world. They bought so much stuff. They maintained a long relationship with Kepler. U.S. intelligence called him a Kodak man because of their deep connections. As World War II started, Kodak continued to communicate with them. And in fact, when German, Germany took over most of the factories, many factories in Germany, including the Kodak factories to make munitions and weapons, Kodak continued to use their connection with Kepler, who was at the time the personal finance advisor to Hitler. They used that connection to control their own factory in Germany, according to my sources. What are your sources? They're all listed in the description of this. And you also tried to reach out to Kodak PR, but of course, like, I mean, you only gave them two days, but also that poor PR person, like, they want to deal with World War II stuff right now. Yeah. This wasn't great, a great email for them to get from me. No, but we do that as a courtesy. Like, we're going to list our sources. We reached out to them. We don't necessarily expect people to respond, but we feel like that's something we have to do. So pretty much every company that had a factory in Germany at the time was doing something for the war effort, like Leica was, BMW, Mercedes, Audi. Mercedes. They were all making yeah. machines of war. Like many of them, uh, Kodak's factories used what they call forced labor from concentration camps. Basically, they took these poor people enslaved in the concentration, uh, concentration camps and put them to work. It was absolutely awful. And that seems to be something that Kodak did. Now, when the war ended, what a lot of the companies did was they felt terrible. You'll see statements from BMW and Audi saying, oh, this was an awful thing that our company actually did and we're very sorry. Kodak didn't really do that. Kodak gave $500,000 to a forced labor fund in Germany, but they did so without actually admitting any fault. And that's a big part of why I reached out to Kodak. I just wanted to say like, do you guys acknowledge that you did this? And like, sorry, can you give us a sorry or something? I, I could find no record of them actually acknowledging it. And it could be that when we think of BMW and Mercedes and Audi, we think of them as German companies, but we think yeah. of Kodak as U.S. as U. So maybe US they thought company. they could like wipe their hands clean a bit and everyone would forget. Yeah, I should also say like other European Kodak branches, like uh, France and Switzerland, they continue to buy and sell products with the Nazis, even though it was illegal. So this was an unusual behavior. Yeah, and th they applied for waivers to do business with Germany, and the waivers mm -hmm. were denied, and then they just continued to do it anyway. And basically, all that money went towards the German war effort. Okay. That was all happening in Europe. But it, on the U.S. side, they had a very different experience. U.S. Kodak is just, like, making cameras and stuff. Some of the Kodak factories do actually start to make some munitions. Like, I see them making some grenades and stuff. There's an army general who calls Kodak up, and he's like, hey, you guys seem to know how to make big factories that produce chemicals and stuff that's skills that we could use right now we have uh, a little project that we call the manhattan project so oak ridge tennessee kodak employees they pull people in from rochester and other places and they set up a massive massive factory and they don't really know what they're doing because everything's very top secret that the employees don't even know but what they're doing is they're separating uranium 235 from raw uranium this U-235 ends up going into Little Boy, which is dropped on Hiroshima in Japan, the atomic bomb that uh, soon leads to Japan's surrender, ending the war in the Pacific. 
Dang, Kodak. That information didn't come out until 1947. But if you look at Kodak's Kodakery internal magazine, you'll see lots of aerial pictures of the factory and they're kind of patting themselves on the back. And I'm asking you how you got, like earlier I was asking you, how did you get all this messed up information? And you're like, the Kodakery, which sounds like a really fun drink, but is actually a little internal magazine that gives up their deepest, darkest secrets. It is really messed up because I went through so many of these magazines. They published it bi-monthly and most of it was just big family pictures of the employees all having fun. And then you'd stumble across, oh, there's a bunch of people in blackface. Or, okay. oh, okay, that's where they built their uranium that destroyed Hiroshima. Wow, okay. <laughs> you know what, I will say something we didn't mention is that George Eastman was like someone that pioneered um, like a good work culture. He was very good to his employees. Kodak employees are so loyal. They love the company and they did have a really deep culture. And I actually think that Kodakery magazine was a big part of it. Yeah, I think so. And actually when I was researching the company, I found these Reddit threads where people were like, oh, my uncle worked for Kodak and he still talks about how they were the best company to work for. Like they treated their employees really well. They had the Kodakery, which was mostly fun, but sometimes gave up their deepest, deepest <coughs> darkest secrets. But like, ugh, there were so many positive things that the company was founded on and then. I feel like I have to say in fairness, we've, we've done the history of many different camera companies. Yeah. But this is only the second one we've done of an American company. The other companies have been German or Japanese, and that means that so much of their internal documentation like this was in a language we could not easily consume. Yeah, that's true. So we were able to go through more detail in Kodak, and maybe we would have found equally messed up stuff about Canon. I don't know. I'm glad I don't know. This is horrible. So okay. right about 1945, there's an engineer at Kodak in Rochester, and Kodak sells x-ray film. Farmers would use it to, I don't know what they're doing, but they use x-ray film to like <laughs> detect uh, stuff going, like hay going bad, that kind of thing. Like what? It gives really? off a little x-ray. Yeah. So they have a, a market that nobody really talks about. Some of those x-ray plates, they're showing up fogged. Like they're developing it and they're calling up Kodak like, why are my plates all fogged? And then the engineer's like, I don't know, man. He's double checking everything, making sure no x-rays are getting in like there's no cracks in any of the manufacturing housing yeah and he ends up like traveling around like trying mm. to track this fogging down to its source like they really care and um he picks up some of the samples and ends up testing it for any kind of radiation that might be infecting the x-ray plates and it turns out yeah there is some radiation he does further testing and he figures out that it has a 30-day half-life and that means it's cerium 141 Cerium. Which is cerium-141, which is a byproduct of the atomic bomb. And it was certainly released during the U.S. testing of the atomic bomb in 1945 because it was shortly thereafter that a lot of these x-rays started to turn up fogged. But it gets a little more interesting than that because where the plates were fogging wasn't obvious. It wasn't all around where they did the testing, but it was downstream in the rivers. What he concluded was that the radiation was traveling from the location of the atomic bomb testing down the rivers and then fogging up their x-ray plates. It was also coming down in the rain. He figured out that the atomic bomb had, was spreading radiation, which is something we did not know. And 
so many thousands, I don't know, millions of people died from radiation poisoning from these atomic bombs. We thought they were just like traditional munitions, like they just go boom and then it's over with. We didn't know that radiation sickness was going to kill so many people. He figured it out pretty early. So Kodak also had a part in figuring out that radiation hangs around and can travel in the atmosphere and via waterways. Right. Popular Mechanics wrote the interesting article that I'm using as a source here, and Popular Mechanics raised the question, should he have said something? Yeah, absolutely. Like, if people knew that they might get radiation sickness, they could have tracked down where the radiation spread and given the people some, I don't know, iodine or treated them in some way. Yep. He didn't, he didn't say anything. Yeah, he should have. He probably should have. But, I mean, I'm not in his position. Who am I to say? 1954, Kodak releases the Browning Bullet. I really bullet. feel like I cut out way more of my slides than you did. You're going into, like, radiation in the rivers. This isn't right. <laughs> the Brownie Bullet was an upgrade to their popular Brownie camera. You and don't care. It continued to sell millions based on the premise that it was inexpensive, easy to use, and you would keep buying Kodak film, mm -hmm. the old razor and blades okay. business model. 1954, also... The government comes back at Kodak for having a monopoly again. Yeah. This time, it's interesting. This time, what the government decides to do is to separate the processing from the purchase of the film. Because up until this point, if you buy some Kodak film, the processing is free. Like, it's included in the initial price. So therefore, when you buy the Kodak film, you're guaranteed to use Kodak processing because you've already paid for it. Yes. There can be no competitors entering the market for film processing nor selling film because they've tied these two integral businesses together. The government breaks that up. So now we suddenly have independent photo processors popping up all over the country. And a lot of older people are going to immediately remember, oh yeah, I used to go to my independent photo processor down the street. That's a result <laughs> of this 1954 breakup. Okay. Uh, before we move on from the whole racist thing, <laughs> 1954, no. they, they have to get everybody's printers calibrated. They have to find, Kodak has to find some way to say, hey, when people bring you our Kodak negatives with this new printing machine that we're selling you, because Kodak somehow managed to completely monopolize the photo printing, Everything. independent photo printing and processing too. So they figure out, we'll, we'll put Shirley in front of a backdrop. Shirley is this woman. <laughs> Surely. And we will take actual original negatives of her. We will send them a printed picture of Shelley, the way it's supposed to be printed, along with this genuine original negative to every independent photo processing outlet. So poor Shirley is standing there for like six days a week, smiling with her eyes wide open for every single original negative that they have to send to each of these places. She must be like one of the hardest worked models of all time because she just takes thousands of these things for each independent photo processing outlet. I don't want to even get into the racist aspects of the Shirley cards, but if you go to Vox and you search for Shirley cards, you will find some interesting information. 1962. Jesus. You remember that Mad Men episode where yes. he makes a pitch to the Kodak executives? They bring him the Kodak wheel, and it's an improvement on their Coda slide, slide projector, but you can put in a whole bunch of slides and actually do a slideshow for your family. Yeah. This is where the term slideshow comes from. 
he pitches the Kodak carousel. It's really moving, and it does indeed move forward the slideshow. Those slideshows are more popular outside of the United States than they are inside of the United I States. I remember being tortured with the slideshow or two. The U.S. still likes to go to their pharmacy and get their prints made. Okay. 1963, the Kodak Instamatic. It sells 50 million units by 1970 by, again, promising to be easy and compact tenants of Kodak. Now we get into the digital era, way before anybody else. 1973, the year before I was born, mm -hmm. there's a young engineer, he's like 23, by the name of Steven, Steven Sasson, and Kodak hires him, and he feels like he gets the worst job. He feels like it's total busy work, like why bother? They give him what's called a charged coupling device, which we call a CCD now, and it's, it just it catches light, and then it holds on to it and sends out a few electrons. That's, that's all it does. So Steve is like, what am I going to do with this? He figures out basically how to hook RAM up to it, RAM, random access memory, so that these little electrons coming out can be stored for a brief period of time. He then figures out how to take that RAM and output it to a magnetic tape. He then figures out how to read that magnetic tape in another device and display it on a screen. <laughs> this all comes together to be the world's first digital camera that can capture 0.01 megapixel black and white pictures. It's a 100 by 100 yeah. array. And then display them on a screen. It takes 23 seconds to write it to the tape and about as long to actually display it. But in less than a minute, he could show a picture. And he went around to the Kodak executives in different meeting rooms and took their picture and then displayed it on a screen. And it was amazing to everyone. It was absolute garbage, because who wants a 100 by 100 black and white picture? But mm -hmm. it worked. It was a proof of concept, and it would change everything for photography. 1976, another Kodak employee, Bruce Baer, Decides black and white is lame. Go Bruce. Yeah. He decides to put green, blue, and red filters over that black and white CCD so that each pixel picks up a bit of color and then figures out a way to combine them into a full color digital image. And we still use the bare filter on basically every modern digital camera. That good work culture at Kodak got people turning out some pretty ingenious things. Yeah, you know, when I look up the sort of official propaganda of Kodak, yeah. a lot of it is like George Eastman was this great inventor. A lot of people say he invented the roll film camera. Yeah. His genius was finding the right people and giving them a good work environment. He was not an inventor. He was a businessman. He owned a lot of patents. He bought a lot of patents, but he brought the right people in. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing Sasson. We're seeing Bear, And they're making the future of digital photography right there at Kodak. 1976, Kodak sees Polaroid making a bunch of money and they're like, we want that money. We're supposed to be the only camera company in the US. What the heck is Polaroid doing? Polaroid is just making instant cameras where you push a button and you get an actual physical print in a few seconds. Kodak makes an instant camera. Apparently they violated some of Polaroid's uh, patents. Polaroid sues him and gets $900 million, almost a billion bucks. That's a nice little chunk of change. Yeah, so this whole patent thing came back around and bit Kodak, and suddenly Kodak was out of the instant camera business. Okay, 1976, they have 90% of films 
sales and 85% of camera sales. So they still have a monopoly. Despite all those anti-monopoly mm. efforts, none of it actually worked. Another one in 1978, the U.S. jury finds Kodak monopoly in amateur photography business. 1984, the time, Tony, 1984, the place, L.A., the other place, the Olympics. And Fujifilm has been trying to break into the U.S. market. They haven't been having much luck with it. But they say to the Olympics, all right, we'll pay $5 million. We just want to be the official film of the Olympics. And it works. They start to take off. They gain a foothold in the United States. And they get like 15% of the market share, which doesn't seem huge. But before this, Kodak was like the only film. So finally, they break into the U.S. market. Yeah, Fuji had been fighting to get a small piece of it and just failed Finally. because Kodak was very good at keeping other competitors out. Yeah, Kodak did it. So this was a real turning point for Fuji. And if you want to know more, you should listen to our much shorter Fujifilm history. This history is a lot, Tony. Let's just, come on, let's, let's bang it out. Okay. What I want to establish at this point is that Kodak made a great deal of new digital cameras and digital camera innovations. Like the DCS-100 in 1990 was like the world's first DSLR. And photojournalists actually bought it and actually used it. You wore yeah. this big like briefcase thing that you slung over your shoulder and it could store 200 megabytes of data, like a 600 JPEGs. It was a 1.3 yeah. megapixel camera. You bought it for 20K, which is like 38,000 now. Okay, 1990, they have a new CEO, it's Kay Whitmore. He had worked for Kodak for a very long time. He was originally like a chemical engineer or something like that, but he'd worked there for a while. He worked his way up through the ranks and he's named the CEO. He is considered one of the worst CEOs of all time. People have been really, really rough on him. And his first year as CEO, he gets a meeting with Bill Gates who wants to integrate some Kodak technology with Windows and he falls asleep on Bill Gates. He's such a bad CEO that his New York Times obituary leads with a paragraph about how he was a terrible CEO for Kodak. How his obituary? His obituary, how savage That's is that? Savage. I saw that and I just gasped. I was like, wow, I hope I, that never happens to me. You think George Eastman would have fallen asleep on Bill Gates? No, but people said he took money away from research and development for digital cameras, and a lot of people blame him for the fall of Kodak. They feel like he fell asleep at the wheel, not just at that meeting. And when he was supposed to be investing in research and development, he was pulling away. He didn't save enough money for Kodak. He was supposed to cut costs. He ended up losing a lot of jobs for people, and as soon as he was fired, only three years into being CEO, Tons of people at Kodak lost their jobs. They had to scale back in a massive way. And in fact, they called it like involuntary layoffs. And they laid off a ton of people. Well, okay, so you can, you can blame Whitmore or you can look at the bigger trend where at this point in history, people are not buying nearly as many prints because everything is going digital. It's possible They're not that buying nearly as much the, film. It's possible that he was a scapegoat for an already downtrending film company, but he also did not want to put money into the digital side of things. But I Kodak did a bunch of digital stuff. After Whitmore leaves, Kodak <laughs> doubles down on the digital. The 1994, they partnered with Apple and make the Quick Take cameras, which is like the first Apple digital camera. I made a podcast about that too. 
Kodak DC40, the first consumer digital camera in 1995, 1998, John Glenn takes the digital camera 460, the DCS 460 into space. 2001, Kodak knows sharing online is important, so they buy Ophoto, if you remember them. I don't. For their easy share cameras. It ended up being bought by... Um, Excuse me. What are they called? Shutterfly? What's it called? That's a thing. Shutterfly? Sure. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Shutterfly is a thing. Oh. Okay. So after they go bankrupt <laughs> later, spoiler alert, Shutterfly buys what was left of Ophoto. Kodak makes the Easy Share LS633 digital camera, which makes it easy to share pictures. Cool. In 2005, Kodak was the number one manufacturer of digital cameras in the United States. I'm saying this because there's this big narrative that Kodak was so invested in film that they didn't take digital cameras seriously, but they definitely did. They invented the digital cameras and they went hard trying to make digital cameras. But for every digital camera they made, they lost $40. Well, they had like 80% profit margins in film. So how were they get supposed to transfer from like, make a shift from profit margins that were insane to making hardware like cameras that was expensive? And that's what I think made Kodak slide into bankruptcy in 2012. People out there are just saying that Kodak didn't see the future. They didn't know digital was coming. That's not true. They're saying they didn't want to cannibalize film sales. They were happy to sell digital cameras. They sold a ton. They just didn't do it successfully. Kodak had never really competed in a free enterprise. They had always had a monopoly. They had always had unfairly high profit margins. So suddenly you had these Japanese companies coming in, like Sony and Fuji and Canon and Nikon, and they ate their lunch. When it was finally a fair fight, Kodak could not hold up at all. Well, they also were a really big company, and big companies are slow and harder to move and harder to change. They had over 17,000 employees. Mm -hmm. How are you supposed to completely change a film company into a digital camera company and not see some losses? Well, Fuji did a really good job of making that transition. AFCA. What's probably that? haven't heard of them. They were a film company that you probably haven't heard of. They were a big competitor, but they kind of also faded out. Hmm. So Kodak did not make that transition, but it, I don't believe it was because they didn't try. They tried and they failed and it was probably impossible. Giants fall. IBM used to be like the biggest company in the world. Now you don't even know what they do. What do they do? I don't know what they're doing now. Oh. I said you don't know, but I also don't know. Nobody yeah. knows what IBM does. So let's talk about what Kodak is doing today. Kodak is still a big company today, which I didn't realize going into this whole podcast. They make over a billion dollars in profits. They have like 5,000 employees, and they have six different divisions. It seems like they make their money enforcing the patents that they've owned. Sort of started with George Eastman. Yeah. So they still have patents for digital cameras and stuff, and no doubt they make a little bit of money on that. They also happily sell the Kodak label to anybody it seems like anybody can make a kodak product now yeah but they also do um they they still make plates for printing like business cards and things like that like offset printing oh really they make the aluminum plates for that and that's i think the biggest part of their business actually and and it's like recurring customers because you can't just buy one plate and use it forever like they have to keep reusing them and so 
yeah, they, that's the biggest part of their business is printing. You can also buy a Kodak racing drone. I don't know why you would want that. It looks like a regular racing no. drone, but it's got the like orange and red Kodak logo on the side of it. And I think the worst example of them just selling off their brand equity, 2018 CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, they launched the Kodak Cash Miner, which yeah. you were supposed to plug it in and it would make mining Bitcoin easy. And they promised that you would make huge profits from it and it was completely unsustainable and many outlets called it a total scam. And I don't know that they ever actually went to market. Yeah. It was just some company that was trying to cash in on Bitcoin and they seem to have bought the Kodak logo and just slapped it on the side. It seems like Kodak is selling the logo to anybody to make a few bucks and make some money off of this amazing brand that George Eastman started building 140 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought that they were gone, but they're still generating revenue. They're still a company. They're still a pretty big company, and that surprised me. Yep. This brings us to the end of the podcast. Wait, there's one more thing they made. What's that? I mean, they made a lot of things, but uh, I believe it was 2018. They remade the Super 8 camera, the video camera. Right. And they put, like, a headphone jack, and they, they put in a micro SD card for audio, and um, you can make your own Super 8 footage. It looked really cool. I was actually going to pick one up and try it, but it was, like, over $1,000 or something. So that's a pretty big investment. But they're still doing some things. There is a resurgence of film, especially for proper filmmakers, and Super 8 was always pretty cool. Yeah, and I believe our friend Andy Shields uses Kodak film and begged us to not ruin Kodak for him in this podcast, and I don't think we did. No. There's so much good history. It's a, yeah. Is there a, a dark history around World War II? Yeah, it's going to make you cry, Andy. But I think there's so much good early history, and now they're fine. What are you going to do? I would love in the comments of our YouTube channel to hear everyone's experiences with their Kodak products. What did it mean to you? When was the first time you picked up a Kodak camera? Do you have any nostalgia for the brand? Or are you totally done? Do you know something about Kodak that we don't know? I bet or that Chris we... Reddy does. Yeah, I bet Chris Reddy does. I feel bad for Chris having had to hear all of this because most of this is not common knowledge about Kodak. I really had to dig deep into the archives to find some messed up stuff. The Kodakery. The Kodakery. Don't read the Kodakery. <laughs> <laughs> Take it from me. Thank you to our sponsor, Squarespace. Whether you need a website, a store, a portfolio, Squarespace can make it happen. And it's easy and it's free for 14 days while you work on their trial. So go to squarespace.com slash Chelsea. If you decide you want to buy it, you can get 10% off with the coupon code Chelsea. All of that is in the description below. Thank you, Squarespace. And we'll see you all next time for the Picture This Photography Podcast. Please subscribe, like, leave us a review. It would help us out so much.